Well, in our last class, if you remember, we did a, a really quick and brief review of all the chapters that we've gone through so far in the book of Revelation. Chapters 1 through 3, the messages to the churches. Chapters 4 through 5, the visions of the Father and the Lamb. Chapter 6, the story of Revelation being told, the breaking of the first six seals. Chapter 7 was the fate of God's people being disclosed while God executed his judgment on, on his enemies. Chapters 8 through 9, the warning judgment, judgments, uh, the first six trumpets. Chapter 10, God says no more warnings, judgment is coming. Chapter 11 basically gives us the, the outcome to the spiritual war that's going on behind the scenes. Chapter 15, a scene of victory in heaven and an announcement of judgment on the wicked. Chapter 16, the six bowls of wrath are unleashed. These are God's final judgments that are being brought upon or the complete judgments of God being brought upon the enemies at this time. We see chapters 17 and 18, the defeat of the harlot. 19, the defeat of the two beasts. They're going down one by one. Chapter 20, the defeat of Satan. And then in chapters 21 and 22, the ultimate victory for God's people. So basically that is the summary, it's a quick brief summary of the things that we have gone through over the last few months. Are there any questions or final comments about the summaries before we move on? Anything at all in regards to that? Questions or comments, feel free to at this time. Anything at all? Okay, so tonight what I wanna do is I wanna move to applications. Now, if we've studied the book and broke down the text, let's see if we can conclude with some, some applications, some things we can take from this book that can help us in our lives today, that can help us serve God better today. Now, as we get into the applications, I want to ask you again, this book, according to the first verse, is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is all about Jesus Christ. Don't ever lose sight of that. It is about helping us understand Jesus better. It is about helping us trust Jesus more. It is about helping us get a fuller and more complete and better understanding of some of the things that the Lord is doing for his people behind the scenes, behind the spiritual curtain. This book is about our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's what it's all about. And so since that is the case, since this book is all about Jesus, it's all about revealing Jesus, let's see what lessons that we can learn about Jesus from this book that can help us in our lives today. In keeping with the series of seven that are found in this book, let me give you seven things, seven things that we, I think we learn about Jesus in this book that we really need to emphasize one more time. And I think these things can help us as we try to serve God and our society and in our culture in the 21st century. Let's start with this application right here. Let's start with how one of the main things we learn about Jesus in this book is Jesus lives. Jesus lives. He lives right now as I speak to you. Go in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1, please. Revelation chapter 1. This is something we learn about Jesus very early in the book. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, John as he's given this great vision into the spiritual dimension, he says in Revelation 1 and verse 17, when I saw him, he saw Jesus. I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, the living one. 
and I was dead. I did die, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I live forever, and I have the keys. The idea of keys is authority, power over. I have the keys of death and Hades. I like these verses because I think they help us as Christians today in a couple of different ways. I think they show us very clearly what makes the person we follow, our spiritual leader, so much better and so much different than all the other religious leaders in the history of the world. We find here what makes Jesus different than Buddha, what makes him different than Mohammed, what makes him different than Joseph Smith or Ellen G. White or whoever else you want to say. You see, unlike those religious leaders that people have followed throughout the centuries, from, he, from this we see that what makes our faith so special and what makes the person we follow, unlike any other person, and he has to be the way, the truth, and the life, is the fact that he lives. He was raised from the dead. He did not die and stay in the tomb, but he came up out of the tomb. He reigns. He lives right now. Mohammed, when he died, what happened? He died. He stayed dead. What about Buddha? What about Joseph Smith? What about any other religious leader in the history of the world? When they died, when they went into the ground, what happened to them? They stayed dead. But not Jesus. In addition to being God, here in Revelation we learn that Jesus is special because he conquered death. He conquered death and Hades. I want to suggest that this should encourage us because if Jesus, our leader, our chief shepherd, is able to conquer death, is there anything that he's unable to help us with in our lives? Is there, is there anything too strong or too powerful for Jesus? I mean, think about these Christians in the first century. How much comfort they must have, have received in the fact that they served a living and risen Savior, one who could conquer death. If one can conquer death, then they can conquer anything, right? And so for us, we need to understand that we serve a Savior who lives who conquers death, and if he can conquer death, that means that no matter what you're going through in your life, he can help you. He can truly help you. He can help you with whatever you're going through, unlike anybody else, because no one else has the ability to conquer death but Jesus. And so that is a message from Revelation that we need to take to heart. This is a key thing about Jesus we learn in this book that is designed to comfort God's people all the way to the end. Jesus lives. But not only does Jesus live, let me say this, Jesus also reigns. He reigns. He reigns as a king of kings and lord of lords. He rules and he has power over any world government. Any world government. Revelation 1 and verse 5 Revelation 1 and verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And here's the part I want to emphasize. The ruler of the kings of the earth. 
What a great text. What a great thing to read, especially if you were one of these early Christians and you thought Rome had all the power. Where, where John says that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by the power, by the power of his blood. Jesus, Jesus is the king. In fact, the scripture refers to him here in Revelation. If you remember Revelation 17, 14, we're going to look at that verse in a second. But the scripture says that Jesus is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. The idea of being king of kings and lord of lords means that he is a king to the highest degree. He is a lord to the highest degree. There is no one, there is no one over Jesus. I like that because it helps us keep life in a proper perspective. So often we can, we can get life out of its proper perspective, can't we? That can be easy to happen. I've been through it. I've done it many times. I struggle with it. It can be easy to look at life and think things are worse than they truly are. It can be easy to get discouraged by decisions made by government, civil authorities. That's, that can be discouraging, can it? Have you ever been discouraged by that? Well, these verses comfort us because they show us that Jesus is still in control no matter what. No matter what happens in our government or any government, doesn't matter if you live in China, countries in Europe, Australia, Jesus is, in, is always in full control. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That was true in the time of the great and powerful and mighty Roman Empire. And if it was true in the time of Rome, how much more so is it true in our time today? Brother Gary, go right ahead, sir. Everybody's going to know it. Yes. Didn't Paul say in Philippians, Gary, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus as Lord? There's going to come a day when everybody's going to be a believer. Even someone like Bill Maher or Richard Dawkins, they'll be believers one day. Unfortunately, they don't repent before they pass. It'll be too late. So, so that's exactly right. We either acknowledge it now or we acknowledge it when it's too late when we stand before him. That's absolutely right. And so Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. We need to take comfort. We need to take comfort in that. I think that will help us keep life in a proper perspective. I want you to understand that the devil, the devil, the evil one, the main enemy in this book, he wants us to lose sight of Jesus reigning. He wants us to look at the world around us and think it's all over. This is the worst it's ever been. It's terrible. There's no hope. There's nothing, there's nothing we can do about anything. That's what the devil wants us to do because he wants us to live our lives discouraged and unhappy. But the Bible puts Jesus in this exalted position, one who is the ruler of the kings of the, of the, of the earth, because it wants us to always remember who, who we truly serve and who's really in control and how even if things look totally bleak and bad around us, we're still on the winning side because we're with Jesus. That's where our hope has to be. And that's what we got to always keep in the forefront of our minds. Jesus is in control. He is our king. And I thank God that we serve him. Now look at this third thing. Jesus knows. Then we see that over and over again. And we've talked about that quite a bit. But let's just re rehearse it one more time. 
Revelation 2. I mean, this is all over the place. Revelation 2, verse 2, I know your deeds. He's talking to the church at Ephesus and your toil and your perseverance. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. Verse 19, I know your deeds. Chapter 3, verse number 1, in the middle part, I know your deeds. Verse number 8 of chapter 3, I know your deeds. Verse 15 of chapter 3, I know your deeds. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. Let me ask you two questions about that. First, how, how is he able to know? How, how is he able to know all the things that are going on here? And how is he able to do that? What makes him capable of being able to do that? He's spiritual, and ultimately he is what? He's God. He's God. So he's able to know because he's God. And omniscience is part of being God. So let's talk about what he knows. There are two things I want to say about that. First, he knows what's going on in churches. Universal church, particularly in this case local churches. He knows about everything going on in local churches. He knows about who's right with him truly, who's not. He knows about, you know, where money's going, what kind of work is being done. He knows it all. Can't hide nothing from him, right? But not just the church, not just local churches. Let's make it more personal. Jesus also knows about your life. He knows about my life. He knows everything I'm doing in my life. I think that should bring two emotions, emotions into us. First, that should comfort us, shouldn't it? I mean, aren't you confident by the fact that no matter what you got going on in your life, even when you feel deserted and all alone and nobody understands you and everybody's abandoned you, Jesus knows. He knows about your life. Even though he is the king of the universe, he is always zeroed in on your little spot in the world. He knows what's going on in your life. But not only should we be comforted by that, we should also be a little frightened by that too, shouldn't we? Because if we're doing things we're not supposed to be doing, if we're not really living that faithful life to the Lord, well, he knows that too. And, and he's watching that and, and he's going to judge us in accordance to that. So the fact that Jesus knows should bring comfort to us, but also should bring some godly fear to us too, right? That should be there too. One more thing, then I'll give you a chance to make a comment or two if you have something to say. One more thing I want to say here. Number four, Jesus' promises. Did you notice all the promises that Jesus made in the book of Revelation? I mean, we even got promises right here in these seven, with these seven churches. Revelation 2 in uh, verse number 10, the, the, the most well-known promise, be faithful even if it means you have to die for me and I'll give you what? Crying of life. That's a promise. That's a promise to them. That's a promise to us. Verse 17, if you overcome, I will give you the hidden manna, a white stone, a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. That's a promise. Chapter 3, 21. Chapter 3, verse 21, he who overcomes, being faithful again, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Have you ever had anybody... You ever had anybody make you a promise and they failed to keep that promise? Never happened to you before. 
<laughs> Someone says every day. That's, that's, that's really bad. When it came to that person who made you a promise and they failed to keep that promise, whether it was a parent, a friend, a sibling, a brother or sister in the church, how did that make you feel? How did it make you feel about that person? <laughs> Man, Tony, you being brutally honest tonight. Did you ever want to, did you, was it easy, let me say it this way, was it easy to ever trust that person again? Trust is something that is, is, is hard to get and it's easy to lose, isn't it? In fact, that may be the reason, just may be the reason why Jesus allows divorce for adultery in Matthew 19 because of the broken trust when that takes place. The Lord knows how fragile trust is. It's very fragile. People, unfortunately, in this life will hurt you. They'll hurt you. It's an ugly world. Brethren will hurt you. They'll break your trust. They'll make promises and won't keep them. But what makes the Lord so different? Yes, Lance. Anyone who makes a promise here does not have control of everything in their life. Jesus and God are in full control, and there's nothing that will ever prevent them from keeping their promise. What about the people who can do better and they won't do better, who can keep a promise but refuse to? There are people like that, right? So what makes Jesus so much better than those people? He's faithful. Again, he's God. He's sinless. He's proven himself to be trustworthy over and over again, hasn't he? Has he ever made a promise that he has un that he's was unable to keep? Has he ever done that? He promised to die on the third day. He kept that promise. He promised... Oh, he promised to die and be raised the third day. He kept that promise. He promised to be ascended to the Father. That took place. He promised his apostles things about their miraculous ability and the things they would do throughout the ministry, and they did those things. Jesus always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. So that's why we can trust him. Every promise you find in Revelation from Jesus, trust it. Because Jesus is incapable of breaking promises. You'll never be able to trust anyone like you can trust Jesus. That's just a fact. Anyone have any uh, comments at this point? Go ahead, Brother Gary. Go ahead, sir. Yep. He may not fulfill them when we want them to be fulfilled, but he always keeps them, doesn't he? He does it at his time. Very good. Anyone else? Any other comments about what we've talked about so far? Any of these four application points so far? Hope these things will help you in your, in your walk with Christ. What about this one? Jesus wages war. Isn't he portrayed in this book as a great conqueror, a mighty warrior? Remember Revelation 17, 14? I love this verse. I hope you got this verse. If you don't mark any other verse down, I hope you at least mark this one down, where Jesus says, these will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is... Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Remember, there's even a time when he's portrayed as, as riding a white horse and leading the, God's people to victory. Jesus wages war. He, he's a lamb, but he's also one who goes to war. And what kind of war? What kind of war is being talked about in that verse? What kind of war is being waged at this time and even today? 
my war was of this world, my servants would fight. His is a spiritual war. Lance is exactly right. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual war. And let's just be honest. We struggle with the spiritual, don't we? I know I do at times. I struggle with the spiritual. You know why? Because I live in a physical world and all I see is physical things. So I struggle at times seeing the spiritual. But if you struggle with that like me, we're not alone in that because the apostles struggled with that, didn't they? They struggled seeing the spiritual. Remember John 6? Why did so many people struggle with that sermon in John 6 when Jesus was talking about if you want to live forever, you have to eat my flesh, you got to drink my blood? When he said that, a lot of people got offended. Why did they get offended? They were thinking physical. But was Jesus talking physical? Was Jesus talking about cannibalism? He's talking spiritual. The Bible says the Holy Spirit combines spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. The Bible's a spiritual book. Jesus taught often in spiritual terms. Even when you, the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, you know, you, I, I provide living water. If you drink it, you'll live forever. Is that a literal water? It's spiritual. Jesus, he's taught spiritual terms. But we struggle with that. And, and if we struggle with that, so often we can struggle with seeing this. We're trying to understand the spiritual war taking place. And we don't realize that's going on. Brother Dennis, yes, sir, you had your hand up, sir. Did you have your hand up? You okay with that? Okay. So the, the spiritual war, in fact, in Ephesians 6, you may want to jot this down, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, you know, Paul talks about we were waging a spiritual war and we, and we got to have the, the, the right tools to go into the, into the war. We got to have the Bible. We got to have the word of God, the knowledge of the scriptures. We got to have prayer. We got to have faith. We got to have love. We, we got to have all these different things. This armor, the full armor of God, right? Why? Because we're waging a spiritual war. And if we don't challenge ourselves to think of that every day, I mean, when you get out the bed every day, one of the first things that needs to come into your mind and my mind is I'm going to war today. I'm going to war. It's not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. The devil's after me. A spiritual war is going on, and I got to make sure I'm equipped with the full armor of God in Ephesians 6 if I'm going to be successful in this war. And thankfully, I don't have to fight the war alone. Thankfully, Jesus is leading the way in the war. I just got to make sure I stay, stay on the right side. Brother Doug and then Dennis. Go right ahead. I got you, Dennis, after that. Go ahead, Doug. Um, I was going to say, if we have any trouble seeing this war, it's very apparent between him and the Pharisees. It's the same war. That brings us out that spiritual nature into physical that we can see. Because we can see ourselves in the Pharisees the same way we can see ourselves in the Good point. Good point. Brother Dennis, yes, sir. It's a struggle, Dennis. Even Paul got frustrated with the Corinthians. He said, I can't talk to you like mature people. I got to talk to you like babies because you're not growing in the spiritual. See, so often to get, to get the spiritual vision requires growth, constant study, constant prayer, constant being, constantly being mindful that there's things going on that we can't see. And, and it's a war being waged between good and evil. That's a challenge. It's been a challenge for me. Uh, uh, but, yeah, go right ahead, buddy. Did you have your hand up?
Yes. Again, spiritual terms. Jesus used them constantly. Uh, spiritual concepts, spiritual warfare. That's what Jesus came to bring. And we got to be mindful of that. That's all I'm saying. And it's a challenge. It takes constant prayer, constant Bible study. Uh, two more, then we got to move. Ryan and then Don. Absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead, Brother Don. I keep thinking about Nicodemus. <laughs> yeah. Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel, and he's supposed to be teaching all of that stuff from the law, yeah. you know, which points to these spiritual things that we're talking about now. And Jesus told him, he said, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand. Right. You don't understand the sacrifices. You don't understand the blood. You don't understand the washings. We're in the same position. Our first battle is the spiritual battle of gaining the knowledge and understanding of what is real in that spiritual world. Absolutely. Now, those are great points, everybody. I, I appreciate y'all backing me on that. I'm glad you can see it. It's important. Let's go to the next one. Jesus wages war, but Jesus wins. And I won't say much about this. I'll just emphasize this last point. That when you read Revelation in the future, just always remember that this was one of the, if not the main reason for the book. Christians were getting beat down at this time. They were just getting just hurt and assaulted in so many different ways. And it looked like the church wasn't going to make it. But Jesus wanted this book revealed to his people and even to us so that we can know that no matter what we go through, the church will survive. The church will thrive, it will grow, it will be what he wants it to be because he's the leader of it. And he never fails. He never fails. And so Jesus wins. When, and when these early Christians got done reading Revelation, they should have been comforted. They should have known that even if we die during this time, it's going to be okay. The Lord knows and he's going to take care of us. And that especially is something that's always going to be relevant for God's people. It always will be. Jesus will win. And, and, and we want to be on that winning side because at this time, it may have been tempting to get out the army. You understand? It may have been like, it's not worth it. I'm, I'm going to lose my job. My spouse just got murdered. And I'm out of here. I, this, it's, not, it's not worth it. Jesus has had this book revealed so we can know it is worth it. It's worth it. Don't get out the army. No matter what, stay on the right side of this battle because the devil will lose no matter how bad things may look. Jesus is winning. He's always winning. And, and so, so this is an encouragement to us because how many people have we seen get out the army? You know any Christians who left the Lord? You know any Christians who got out the army? We see it all the time, don't we? They've made the wrong decision. They're on the losing side now. We want to stay on the winning side. That, that's the point. Okay? A couple more things real quick. Well, one more thing here, then i got a, one more a thing I want to talk with you about. And that is Jesus makes all things new. That's number seven. Remember in the book it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. Peter talks about that in 2 Peter 3. New heavens, new earth. That's what we're looking for, right? New heavens, new earth, new order new experience, new blessings. That's what you have in Jesus. 
a, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, I want to say that this idea of new heavens and new earth, new order, new experiences, new blessings, is true in a couple of different senses. It's true with respect to the covenant we're under, the church. Think about the old, contrast the old law and the new law. Are there any things different? What about the sacrifices? Is that new under the new covenant? Do we have to do the animals? No, Jesus was our sacrifice. New order. What about the temple? The temple in the Old Testament was what? The one in Jerusalem. What's the temple today? What's the temple today according to what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians? Church. It's the church. The church is the temple. The church is the temple of God. So that's something that's new. What about how you get into God's family? In the Old Testament, how did people get into God's family? They were what into it? Born into it. Born through the physical lineage of Abraham. How do you get into the, the family under the new covenant? Born again through the spirit and through baptism. New order. You understand? The church is, is a new, new order of things. Very different. But not just that. Not just the church. Heaven is new heavens and new earth. That's going to be all things new. And can I explain that to you? Well, I can't explain that. I don't have a, I'm a physical creature. I don't know what that's going to look like. I just know that based on what we studied in Revelation 21, 22, it's going to be great. And I want to be part of it, don't you? I want to be part of that. So Jesus makes all things new. Things are new in his kingdom, in his church, when you contrast it to the old. And things are going to be new when we get to the house of God with him forever. Now, last thing I want to say real quick. First off, let me just stop. Um, before I go to this next part, are there any comments or questions about these things we've talked about so far? These things we've learned about Jesus from this book that can help us and encourage us as we live in some troublesome times as well, where people are very hostile to our faith. Is there anything, any comments or questions about, about this so far? Anything at all? Please feel free to. All right. So, so let me close with a couple other things real quick. I want to give you some helpful study tips moving forward since it's going to be a while probably before we tackle this book again. And believe me, I got no problem with that at all. But uh, let me give you a couple of things, some, some things to think about. First, I want to remind you of the online resources. Thankfully, we live in a time where there's great technology. Technology can have a lot of bad attached with it, but it can also have a lot of good, can it? I mean, we, we can reach people with the gospel today in places that, that we may not have been able to years ago unless we got on an airplane or a boat and went over there. The, the, I mean, the, the Internet has made the world a lot smaller and has enabled us to reach people in places just through a, a, a camera. It's amazing. And so all of these classes that we've been doing since February or January or so, they're online for you. You can go to the website. You can go to YouTube. You can point your friends to those resources. If you have friends who have questions about Revelation, those things are there. Brother Brian has all those things really organized very well through YouTube and the website. Secondly, some, some books. Um, if you ever want to talk with me more about this, feel free to. 
Uh, these are just a few of the books that have been helped me through the years. Mitch may have some others that's helped him. I really like Robert Hawkwriter's commentary on Revelation. I think it's a, I think it's a really good one. Uh, I've used that as a resource. Gary Witcher has a good book that has some good things on it called The Lion and the Lamb, The Revelation of the Redeemer. I think that's a good resource. I've told you about Mark Roberts, the gospel preacher out in Texas. Really good book called Understanding Apocalyptic Literature. Easy read. I think it can enlighten you and, and, and enlighten all of us on some things about this particular genre that the book of Revelation is written in. In fact, this subtitle, A Guide to the Book of Revelation. Uh, Farrell Jenkins, and, and Don, you may know about this one. I think has a little good little book here on studies in Revelation that's been helpful to me. Mitch said something one time about a good little book by Matt Henneke uh, called The Seven Churches of Asia. Good little read there, good book. And then I got a copy of the Apocrypha, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha were the books written between the Testaments. We talked about that, remember. Uh, well, this, this is helpful because it shows how this genre of the Revelation was written in. It's not was not uncommon during that time. Many of the Apocrypha books are written in the same kind of way. So those are just some, some things that, that maybe you want to purchase and add to your library that may can help you if you want to keep studying this. A few other things I want to say as far as study tips go, then I'll close. When, when studying the Revelation, as you, if you want to go back in the, to this book a year from now, two years from now, whatever, always be cautious of what you hear people say. People say a lot of crazy stuff about Revelation, don't they? They say crazy stuff. Always be cautious. Don't believe everything you hear people say. Study the book for yourself, okay? Because people are going to tell you all kinds of things that are just wrong. So don't listen to people. Go to the book and read it for yourself. Be cautious. Secondly, keep studying your Old Testament. Study your Old Testament over and over and over again. There are literally hundreds Hundreds of Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. And if you keep studying Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and many of the prophets, it will only help you through the years as we keep trying to grow in Revelation. Keep studying your Old Testament. It helps when you study the New Testament. Number three, when you study Revelation, if you get to verses, you're like, man, I can't remember what this means. I can't remember all the details. Don't frustrate yourself with that. Always try to see the big picture. That's, that's what I do when I go back to Revelation. I can't remember things. I read it in sections and just ask myself, okay, what's the point? What is the point of Revelation 1 and what's being told about Jesus? What is the point of the seals? What's the point of the trumpets? What's the point of Armageddon? What's the point about this stuff about heaven? You're not going to be able to remember all the details, but you can remember the point of different sections. And that can help you, and you can, you can still get a lot out of the book moving forward. So just, just try that. That's all I'm just suggesting. Try that. Number four, always remember audience relevance. Audience relevance. Don't ever forget who the book was written to first and how it applied to them first. And then if you do that, you can make better application of how it applies to you today. Audience relevance. And that, that's a Bible study rule that applies to any book, doesn't it? Whether it's 1 Corinthians, Acts, whatever. Audience relevance. It was, let's remember who was written to first, see from their perspective, and then we can get a better understanding of it. 
Number five, be careful with commentaries. You say, Sean, you just showed me a bunch of commentaries. Yes, I did, but I don't take everything in those books say hook, line, and sinker. You know why? They're written by men. And can men be wrong? Especially about revelation, they can be wrong. So be careful. Commentaries, commentaries can be good tools, good resources, but remember always they are not the word of God. The word of God is the best book to go to find the truth, not the commentary. Okay? Be careful with that. And then finally, always have an open mind. When we, or when I've studied with people from denominations, or atheists, or agnostics, you know what I always ask them to do? I say, will you study with me with an open mind? Will you, will you please study this with me we just with an open mind? Have you ever done that before? Ask people to study with you with an open mind? Why is it so hard for us to sometimes take the same medicine? Have you ever noticed that? We want people to study with an open mind with us, but we don't have an open mind. We need to have an open mind. We need to go to not just Revelation, but other books of the Bible with fresh minds saying, hey, I want to learn. And if I'm wrong about something, I'll be willing to change my view. I'm going to tell you all something. I've taught Revelation now probably three or four times. And every time I teach it, my views change on something. My views have changed on something this last few months. I ain't going to tell you what it's changed on. That's between me and God <laughs> and me and my wife. But it's changed on some things. I take that to be growth. We grow in the word. What we believe today may be, may be different a year from now or 10 years from now, especially with a book like Revelation. There's nothing wrong with that. The Bible says we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know everything now. We're growing. And take that approach to Revelation. How you feel about things today may be different as you keep studying. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. We always want to try to come to the understanding of the truth. Okay, we did it. I kept my job in the process, too. Some kind. Maybe I did. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so thank y'all for studying with me. I appreciate y'all. Love y'all so much. God bless you.